Hello and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora. I am Jehan Marku, your lead moderator for the group discussion today. And as usual, I am joined by Dr. Nigam Aurora. Hello, everybody. And of course, our usual members are here to join in the group discussion. Dr. Researcher Professor Sarah Jane Ward. Hey, everybody. Happy to be here as always. And joining us as usual, David Valancourt from the GMP Collective. Hey guys, the only token non-PhD here. I'm excited to be back <laughs> with you guys. Simply a master of science. Yes. <laughs> uh, today's episode was put together with a friend of the show, uh, Del Potter, CSO of Leaf Labs, as well as CSO and founding member of AYA Biosciences, very, making some very interesting strides in the psychedelics research space. Uh, he will be on in a future episode, but he sent us the articles we're going to discuss today, which are fantastic. So we have a great show for you today. For the science, we're going to talk about the promiscuity of psychedelic compounds, and we're going to talk a little bit about a CBD methyl ester, some of these new compounds coming out of the Meshulam lab, and, and, and maybe being a little critical about how we talk about them and what their potentials are. And we're going to Again, jump into some very interesting new stuff about MDMA, MDMA, LSD combinations, the history of psychedelic beer, uh, and those are just a couple things. So away we go. So our first article I want to jump into to spend a little bit of time with is an article that came out of Forbes. Um, and this is an article about is, you know, MDMA the glue that may hold together a marriage. And, and this article is about a, an, an elder couple that apparently became much closer and much better uh, after taking MDMA. Uh, they talk about it, its transformative power. They're releasing a book. They say only use pure MDMA for these experiences. And these are these clinical guidelines. And they stop short of just telling you where to get it. Um, you know, there are two things that end most relationships. and and many of those are, are, are disagreements over lifestyle or actions. And the other is substance use. Like substance use is probably more than infidelity or anything else and relationships. But here we're being told that it actually might be the glue to hold a relationship together. And I know I'm being a little glib with that, but, you know, Sarah, uh, you know, I feel like, you know, drug use and outcomes and, and the factors that make them good or bad are kind of your jam. What, what, how did you feel reading this article? <laughs> well, as an expert in the field who's been divorced twice, uh, I, can, I have a lot of thoughts on this article. Um, and I would, I would add, really, I think what, um, you know, can help a marriage to fail really quickly is lack of communication. And um, I think, I mean, the, the, what really was thought provoking for me was what's the right way to improve communication with substance use or with learning how to communicate? Uh, you know, so that for me was really the bottom line, as well as thinking about why, why do we feel either personally or as a society the need to use a substance? And this actually is probably a, an underlying feature for all of the articles. You know, as somebody who is a pharmacologist, I think about using pharmacology as a medicine to set something right that has possibly gone awry in the body. 
And when I think about brain chemistry and using something like an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety drug is the thought that there's, um, you know, the brain for whatever reason isn't functioning in a homeostatic way and is adding a pharmacotherapy going to help rebalance that. But as a pharmacologist and understanding that there are adverse effects to any drug, um, can we really ultimately try to fix things without a pharmacological agent first? So I yeah, think that's, that's a... really what hit home to me is let's start with learning how to communicate with one another and really figuring out, is there a situation where you really need a substance um, to help that? And if, and I'm not saying there is or there isn't, but that, that's where I, that's where my brain went uh, with that article. I think that's a great point. You know, what's, what good is, I, I guess I say this tongue in cheek, like what good is all these having, feeling empathy for someone, feeling more connected as, as MDMA is reported to do. Not that I know anything about that, but that it, uh, you know, but if you can't communicate it, uh, what's, what use is having those feelings and thoughts if you can't share them in a way that helps your partner understand them as well. And so, yeah, maybe, you know, don't just slap some, the MDA, MDMA bandaid on your relationship, be like, we're good, let's go hiking together. Um, <laughs> there might, you might want communication. And I think that's, that's such a, that's such a great point. Uh, there was something else interesting in this article that doesn't have much to do with relationships, but I just thought it was cool from like a, uh, an experiential point of view or, or how's another way that I should say it. Um, there's a lot of things in life that uh, seem a little bit risky or, or seem a little bit challenging, but folks who know how to do it, um, they have that knowledge and they can do it safely or they can do it in a kind of a, a secure way. So this actually reminded me, the point I'm going to make reminded me of the article we reviewed recently about bad trips. And one of the findings from that was that people who were experienced with psychedelics didn't really believe in the bad trip. It was something that they would go beyond. They would come to understand the substance and how it worked in their brain. Um, and that wasn't something that was like so common with them. So anyways, in a similar vein, I thought it was cool how the writer of this was giving people tips about um, taking supplements to avoid uh, issues with um, feeling, um, you know, bummed out the next day or whatever, as people report after using, you know, they have this high from the, the MDMA and then the next day they don't feel so good. And then also just, you know, some other tips like, uh, you know, hydration and being in a safe space and all this. So um, I just thought it was cool that he was sharing his kind of experiential knowledge with other uh, folks here. Yeah, I, absolutely. Thank him. Um, and I and, and I think he alludes to that a little bit that they already had a pretty good relationship. And this just, you know, maybe put it in a different level, but they had all these other positive factors in place. It wasn't like everything was bad. And then they sprinkled some MDMA in the mix and everything was cured magically overnight. Uh, but so, you know what I hear? I hear if you sprinkle some MDMA in with your LSD, it can make everything better. And that's actually our next article. Uh, so the, I'm so glad you mentioned that because combining drugs is more exciting than just taking them one at a time, objectively speaking, from a scientific uh, perspective. 
And there is a phase one clinical trial going on at a lab in Switzerland. And, and you know, if you know, listener, uh, this this article is in the show notes. It's a one pager, super fascinating, um, combining LSD and MDA in a groundbreaking phase one clinical study. Um, it'll start at the end of the year in Basel, Switzerland, where a lot of cool psychedelic stuff has happened and, and fringe treatments kind of on the edge of science. And I am very, very interested in this and how it might create this psychological state that might have more lasting effects. Um, I don't know where to begin. Um, you know, who wants to jump in on this? I mean, this article, this, this press release blew my mind. I was so fascinated by this. Um, and, and there is, there are street terms for combining these drugs. I mean, I'm not that familiar with them, but, um, What's, what's, isn't there one when you like combine MDMA, psilocybin, and LSD? I think on Wikipedia it's Candy flipping. Yeah, okay. I thought it was, I, I, Wikipedia said Jedi flipping, but I oh, think yeah. the candy flipping makes sense. Well, Sarah, <laughs> since you're familiar with it. Um, kids learning this stuff. Where are you getting yeah, this? Um, you must know some college students. Uh, so, Sarah, what are your thoughts on this? Is this like one of the coolest things you've heard announced recently, or are you like, there's some things I want to straighten out before we jump into the phase two. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was, so I did my PhD thesis on speedball, on studying cocaine heroin combination. So I'm very interested in, uh, <laughs> in rats. <laughs> okay. Thank you for <laughs> clarifying. Um, but, you know, and so, and the reasoning was, you know, why do people like to do that? And it's very similar, well, you know, a little bit similar to what they were saying in this article that, you know, there's a dysphoric component of LSD, and can you counteract that with, you know, the positive effects of MDMA? Uh, also reminded me a little bit of THC and CBD, and, you know, using the two together to balance out one could be pro-anxiety, the other one could be anti-anxiety. So I liked that, you know, concept of thinking, why would you combine something, and is there a therapeutic uh, benefit to um, combining something. And I love the fact that it's a phase one clinical trial, right? That's where these things need to be studied. Would this improve safety um, or, or could it make it more dangerous? You know, so the reason why people candy flip is because it increases the subjective high and there are studies in animals with MDMA and LSD showing that animals experience a greater high when these two drugs are combined. So I think it's super cool to think about this approach. Is it safe to combine these two drugs and is there a therapeutic benefit? So I, I thought it was really exciting. Excellent. Um, David, do you want to share some thoughts about this? I imagine this press release comes out, you're going to have some clients who are manufacturing in these spaces going to want to be like, oh, I guess the training wheels are off. Let's start some uncontrolled product diversification. Um, just share some some insights or thoughts you had. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think even just thinking back to the first article and combining the two uh, in terms of, you know, getting back, uh, getting away from this API model of, you know, single ingredients to the whole plant or multiple, you know, plants and what's the interaction? Because we don't live in a vacuum, right? We, we don't live in this simple world where it's variable A, variable B. And, um, you know, whether I'm drinking my coffee, consuming my H2O water, you know, et cetera, it's just a very complicated world. And so let's, let's try to try that together 
into you know this this kind of new world that we're we're operating in and uh, do it safely, right? With consistent products. So, um, you know, if it's okay for us to, you know, it's socially accepted for us to, um, you know, go and get drink alcohol on our first date, you know, to, to lubricate us and make us feel very, you know, comfortable. Um, but that's a toxin and somehow that hasn't been vilified to the extent that MDMA has where you see this couple that's, you know, in their late sixties, early seventies, rediscovering their relationship in some ways. Um, great. You know, we, we started a relationship with alcohol, most of us on our first dates. Um, what, what's wrong with this? And it, as long as it works in a safe and controlled manner, it's exciting to see where this can go. Yeah, it's, it's important that your partner pairs well with the Chardonnay, I've found. It's, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Nigam, any thoughts, uh, you know, on this really cool press release about this LSD MDMA combo phase one clinical study? Um, I do. I have a couple, I have two key thoughts. One was when I read the first line, and, and I won't spoil it, uh, it's in the show notes, folks, go read it, read the first line of this, and then email us and tell us what you thought about it. But when I read the first line, I was, you know, I was thinking, it's a little, it's a little bit of hype. It's, um, there, it's exciting, but it was almost uh, too much hype for me. But then I had the opposite feeling when I followed the link and I went to the uh, clinicaltrials.gov site and I started reading about it because I wanted to learn more about the nuance and the dosing and all this. So um, I, I agree that it is very cool. And um, for folks familiar with dosing regimens for these two substances, um, they're combining them at 100 micrograms of LSD with 100 milligrams of MDMA. So this is not a micro dose by any means. So it's um, kind of interesting. Jacob, you said 100 micrograms of, of LSD. That is, is that a lot? I mean, I, th I think it's like, isn't 150 like the, the bike ride threshold? Like, you know, that's the, the intoxication, like most people are intoxicated at this level. The, uh, what, what um, I've seen, is that 125 so a little bit lower so we're like and you know this has to do with um a lot of individual characteristics as well as you know if this is uh what do we call it i don't know if this is a phrase sarah please correct me clinical grade lsd i i don't know if like you need less of the better grade to go on your bike ride that day but anyways um jayhan to answer your direct question from what i understand um, to share with the listener from several drugs, we think about milligrams, THC, psilocybin, MDMA, all of these we're thinking about milligram amounts for LSD. It's important for folks to know that we're talking about microgram amounts. So this is, you know, <laughs> considerably smaller. If people are taking milligrams of LSD, we're going to have huge, huge problems. And and for folks who are interested in this, uh, I would definitely encourage them to read uh, what has been studied in the peer-reviewed literature or for folks who might want to um, have something uh, a little uh, easier to read or anecdotal. There are sites like Arrowid and stuff like that that provide these kind of uh, knowledge base to the community. So, um, Jayhan, thanks for calling that out. Uh, I think that's great to uh, kind of help people understand what these numbers really mean. Excellent. So we're going to move on to another article. Uh, this is tagged as the time distortion drugs. So this is from an interesting blog 
that I like to read to scare the pants off myself <laughs> called On the Edges of Science and Law. And one of the great things about some scientific ideas, even when they're maybe not the most friendly ones, they can be provoking and stir new thoughts. And this article called Altering Prisoners' Sense of Time, The Moral Regression of a Futuristic Technology, published by Caroline Theriot. Um, also, she may be a candidate for some sort of MDMA empathy assisted uh, psychotherapy. I'm kidding, but uh, you know, uh, she writes about uh, what if you could create a psychedelic that you know, a pill that could change someone's perception of time, which happens, it's been reported for cannabis, it's been reported for other things, how people estimate time changes. They tend to think a lot of time has changed, sometimes a little bit. So why not harness that for the prison industrial complex? And so a 10-year sentence could feel like a millennia, or a person could experience a 10-year sentence in two years. Uh, frankly, we have a lot of things that already distort our perception of time. Um, going to the DMV, that feels like 10 years. Um, there's lots of examples we could show to without having to, to mess with people's brains. Uh, but, you know, but this was so provoking to me because at first I was really like, who is this person? This is, this is not a, it's not friendly. This is like a terrible idea. But then I kind of thought about from a research perspective, and if you ever could get IRB approval for something like this, it would be so fascinating to explore this artificial construct that we call time. I mean, Unless you're actually on hallucinogens, there are no numbers in the sky. Like we made this stuff up at one point. Um, but it, I do have some really ethical <laughs> feelings about this. I'm having trouble communicating. So someone help me out here. What are your thoughts on this article? Um, you know, Nigam, you know, we talked about this a little bit offline, but do you have, has your reaction changed to this a little bit? So um, I can share with the listeners a little bit that, um, you know, we record these podcasts in the morning when everyone's fresh and uh, that's great. But what we do is we have uh, our little night sessions where we'll check out articles, we'll, we'll chat with people in the in the HLI community and um, just kind of spitball ideas. So as Jahan mentioned, this article came up on our night session earlier this week and and I was just just disgusted I really was not happy with this article and um to answer your question Jehan I I um I I feel similarly my um sentiment has not really changed and um I, I can't possibly favor or put my bandwidth into um, can even considering like sending people to prison with psychedelics. I just in their own minds or in like in a physical space and in their own minds. I just, I, I can't get into it. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the journalist makes it clear or blogger makes it clear that, you know, these conventions that protect prisoners only cover, you know, physical space. Uh, not so much mental space, like you know, phys physically isolated, you know, things like this. Um, let's let's uh, make sure to just not bother protecting the most vulnerable populations, right? Let's just, you know, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know what she's getting at. Maybe I'm being too harsh. I, I don't think you are, uh, but you know, it's it was a very brave idea to put out there, very provoking idea, I would be interested to know if this uh, writer's sentiment around this, if this was a project, because I've written about things I don't agree about, just to be like, 
to learn about them. Like I used to dismiss the cannabis and psychosis and hyperemesis stuff as being overblown. And I said, well, let me try to just write an argument that supports the idea about this. And I learned a lot more about the factors that go into it. And Sarah, you were, you know, a great help in opening up my mind and how to really think about this stuff and apply it in work and research and education. And so I, I would like to get your thoughts about this because even when you work with animals, there's like, you know, you probably would not want a rat to suddenly think a year had gone by. I mean, I could really mess up some experiments, I'm guessing. Uh, how, how do you react to this sort of idea um, for this this drug? And could even a drug be legally developed for this? Uh, it's not a therapeutic, right? I mean, I'm just, yeah. <laughs> Well, I think one of the interesting things is that we've been talking about psychedelics in the context of therapy, and that it's fascinating to, to think about the same class of drugs and to turn it on its head and to say that that's punishing. Um, and and I, I feel this way about cannabis. I, you know, For me, one of the most disturbing things about cannabis is the time altering effect being somebody who was raised to be you know if you're on if you're on time you're late and if you're early you're on time <laughs> so i find that to be extremely stressful whereas other people you know enjoy that facet of it so even even if this was remotely a good idea you know to that's a, that's subjective to say that slowing time down is going to somehow be punishing or you know is it positive but I, you know, you touched about something that I think is the best part of this article is the strength of working through an idea to see if you can make it sound good. And you know, what the article laid out for me is this excellent opportunity to think about the penal system. Uh, so when I was reading, you know, you guys were up late, probably, you know, having a few drinks and talking about this article. I was reading it with my 10 and 12 year old children uh, and they hashed it out with each other. You know, it's like, oh, well, I think, well, no, I think this is that. And it was, it was awesome. I mean, people need to be having these kinds of conversations. Why do we send people to prison? You know, and I, I thought that this article did a great job of laying out the different purposes for incarceration and what are what are people's goals with incarceration and and how does this <laughs> uh, horrible idea fit into that so uh, yeah i think the idea, the concept is terrible but again the 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 thought process you know brings about i think some really important ethical conversations for everybody yeah, so i think uh, it's worth the read for sure absolutely and, and you know you said something that gave me some new ideas there. And one is, is what happens if, you know, that person has a weird or a rare genetic mutation that suddenly the drug binds more strongly and they get a hundred year sentence instead of a 10 year sentence. Who is there? A, is there a brain warden that's going to come around and unlock the door and be like, Hey, you got a visitor. <laughs> um, but, but maybe there is a, a use for this. Like think about like space travel and people having to like spend a year and stasis or low activity or hyperbolic chambers or just being isolated for a year or two maybe this is a way to explore that distortion of time in, in a productive way for society to you know improve our ways to explore the depths of the ocean that still have not been explored like one percent of the ocean's been like explored or something like that so maybe that's the way to do it uh but but david i'd like to go to you before 
I really want to get your thoughts on this beer article we're going to talk about, but, but, you know, yeah. what did you think of this? Yeah. So, you know, uh, before we start recording, Sarah and I were, you know, kind of talking off the record, I guess. Um, but, you know, I see this as a couple uh, about this very article. And I think a couple things to kind of bring back to Sarah's point, which is, you know, one, it, it's a really good thought piece. And I, you know, whether that was its intent or not, I see it as a, you know, let's just recognize what, you know, these, these drugs, hallucinogens can do both good and bad, you know, on a, and because there's a spirit of unintended consequences. And how does that tie into our justice system? Um, you know, how we conduct our life, how we do fundamental research, to your point, Jayhan, if we're going to go to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, we're going to send people to Mars to, you know, rehab it, then, um, you know, maybe, maybe this is a great concoction that can get us to Mars um, sustainably. So, you know, wherever the conversation takes folks, the fact that we are starting to have these kinds of conversations, I think is the most important part. And let's see where it goes from there and hopefully not into too many unintended consequences. Great, great points. And as we are continuing this journey, which seems to be a lot about combining different drugs and this one of my favorite subjects. I mean, I, that was one of the first things I wanted to do in the lab was combine different cannabinoids. But I was, I didn't even think like, oh, combine other non-cannabinoid things at receptors and, and different models. And I, you know, Del Potter sent me this article on the brief history of hallucinogenic beers. And this is by far one of the, my favorite articles in the popular science area, popular culture area I have read in a while from oct.co. And, you know, you journey to the stranger corners of beer forums on Reddit and other places, and you don't know what's real and what isn't. But what seems to be real is that people all around the world, from the Mayans to the Vikings, were making alcoholic concoctions and putting all sorts of herbs on them, sometimes with the explicit, like, goal of getting people intoxicated to visit other realms. Here's a drink to help you on your way to speak with our alien friends that will help us build the pyramids later uh, or, or whatever, you know, thing with that. Of course, the Spaniards showed up and thought that was just terrible idea. And uh, when the Mayans were doing it, but, you know, Vikings have done it. Other groups have done it. Sometimes these things were added to preserve the, the, the freshness of the beer, the life of the beer. But sometimes, again, the intent appears to have been to, you know, throw in, you know, wood wormwood throw in opium throw in you know whatever was around um henbane you know for example that was popular in germany during the middle ages i found this art just to be so fascinating and it made just so much sense because this is probably safer to drink than water at the time like uh the, the, your your mushroom hop you know pilsner is probably like better for you than most things you could probably drink 400 years ago um in a loose definition of safe that most people are unfamiliar with. Uh, so, you know, David, gosh, I, I got to imagine, you know, as people become familiar with these ideas and these ancient recipes, you could get some venture capitalists coming to you saying, I found the ancient Viking remedy for hallucinogenic ale and I want to roll it out in Oregon now that, you know, um, share some of your insights or thoughts. You don't got to necessarily address that question, but I, I'm curious <laughs> to get your thoughts on, you know, these, these, these products. Uh, so my ADHD brain is just operating on overdrive when I read this article and, you know, I sent it to a good friend of mine who, who runs one of the first spontaneous fermentation breweries in the United States, um, basically taking lambics to a, an interesting level. And of course, 
he volleyed back to me with a really great um, book that he recommended I read that's a bit dense, but I'll, I'll share it with all of us and perhaps for a future podcast. But, um, you know, I, there's, yeah, let's see, where do I begin, right? Um, I love the one thing that you said that the article speaks about in terms of, you know, a lot of it from the European sense came from a necessity. You know, we, we threw hops in there and fermented it for pres preservation so that we could actually preserve and have safe you know, water to drink or beverages to drink. And then there's, you know, we've kind of flipped upside down this paradigm that I really appreciate where, you know, indigenous folks have come from and we're trying to get it back to, which, you know, there's a quote that I'll read here um, from Pitcher, one of the interviews in this article, where you just said, you know, historically in the West, there's this idea that you hold the beer. However, in many other societies, the idea is that the alcohol or other mind-altering substance holds you. And, you know, this is why during encounters with the indigenous people, peoples, Europeans declared them to be uncivilized because they would drink for the spiritual experience. And, uh, you know, why, why are we consuming this? It's the experience, right? And how can it help us, whether it's getting into therapeutic benefits, you know, which with MDMA trials and, you know, psilocybin and, you know, everything we've been talking about today, do we combine it with beer? Do we separate it from beer? How do we look at this from a multi-component um, ingredient? And let's not forget 500 years ago, GMPs were not even a thing. So, um, you know, we've come a long way in the fact that, you know, we've survived this long. Um, is so David, I, I'll push yeah. back a little bit on the GMP thing, but maybe this doesn't qualify. But there was that rule in Germany with the king where you could only make beer with five ingredients. It's been around since 1200. Would you say that's a proto-GMP program, or is that just... Yeah, it's, it's starting with specifications, right? Here's what we define beer as, these five ingredients, period. And you have to put constraints and some sort of parameters in it so that we can call what's beer. At what point does it become wine? Um, funny, quick tangent, if I may. Um, I was in Washington State uh, trying to get an escape to the middle of the you know, forest with uh, away from the pandemic folks and we go into the the store uh one of the liquor or one of the convenience stores and i see these little bomb things of like it's i'm like isn't this wine or is this liquor and they're like well it's illegal to sell hard liquor in a convenience store but as long as you throw some grapes in there they meet the definition of wine now and now they're selling 18 to 20 percent beverages at the 7-eleven legally <laughs> so it's, it's actually when you throw a little bourbon in, in a glass of red it's called a dirty frenchman um so maybe that's <laughs> i'm sorry i'm just making stuff up i am not a certified mixologist do not start making that drink at home uh thank you david that was a that was great great stuff um you know sarah i see a big smile on your face i gotta know what's on your mind about this article uh it, you know, here's a question for you that you can answer or not, um, but a prompt for you. And that's, you know, do you think that we would see less alcoholism if there were these psychedelic substances in it? So like, imagine there was like a, you know, empathy, you know, drugs that increased empathy and these sort of spiritual feelings. It might be hard to finish that, those 12 beers watching the Giants game. You know what I mean? Like, that that may not that would not happen very often. I don't know. I'm just a pure conjecture here. There aren't enough like... beers right now to get me through a Giants game. <laughs> 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 
No, I, I feel like, David, there's like so many different directions I, I could go on this, but I'll start with the first one that popped into my head as you were talking that brings me back to how do we treat things. I've heard people, people have asked me how much CBD should I put in my vodka because CBD is antioxidant and maybe it'll protect your liver from the alcohol. Um, you know, again, coming from a substance abuse background, being very interested in, in alcohol abuse, um, let's not try to decrease alcohol consumption by adding more drugs into it. Uh, but, you know, and that brings me to my other thought, which is, you know, and I think this was mentioned in the articles, like, isn't alcohol poisonous enough? So it's like, it was like, people used to put poison in their beer, like alcohol is a poison. And then that makes me think about, I think the next article that we're going to talk about, which is about, you know, exceptionalism of different drugs. And we all have different perceptions, goes back to what David was saying about, you know, meeting over wine um, as you're dating. A lot of us feel very comfortable drinking beer, you know, alcohol is fine. And then for some people, oh, but you've added what to it? It's like, you know, does that make it better? Does that make it worse? Um, uh, you know, these articles are all so, you know, wonderfully intertwined. Um, so I think, uh, you know, again, lots of long conversations to be had about, um, you know, the strengths and weaknesses to adding other uh, chemicals to your to your alcohol and and I'll end with this I think we've talked about this before too just because it's been done for thousands of years doesn't make it safe or a great idea or a bad idea but it, well, it, the history yeah, like, is interesting but it doesn't convince me that that's the way it should be uh, I agree I agree so don't go down to you know your doctor's office and expect to get leeches and a nice like hearty you know, psychedelic beverage for any purposes. Um, you know, I love that point. Like thousands of years, people have been doing this. You know, we humans are very special. Sometimes, you know, there there are members of our society that just cling to ideas, no matter how bad or harmful they are. <laughs> it takes a certain special type of someone, as George Carlin would say. Nigam, <laughs> what are your thoughts on this article? Uh, yeah, just uh, quickly, I wanted to share a takeaway that I had. And David, um, I wrote down the exact same quote as you that you already read, um, which was talking about this kind of differential between the Europeans. Um, it, they they were um, they were judging this other civilization for having this experiential thing right so the other part was that uh they were talking about before the laws about what is beer and before uh beer was made with hops and and these other like large-scale agricultural commodities beer was made by um women in the home and they would forage and they would make it out of these things they could collect like henbane, which had these like psychedelic properties. So the two takeaways that I got from this, one was that in this transition from beer being made in the home, largely by women to beer being made like as an industry, largely by men, they began to 
demonize women and call them witches because they were still making psychedelic beer at home. And then similar thing where, you know, the Europeans are like, oh, it's a commodity. It's not psychedelic anymore. And then they go to Central and South America and it is still psychedelic. And again, they were saying, oh, well, you don't do it like we do it. So um, and then here we are now again, you know, on a recent episode, we reviewed this thing with uh, Compass and uh, the Sona Institute and like, should psychedelics be patented or should it be open for everyone? And it's just, you know, the thing about history is it's not linear, it goes in cycles. So here we are again with, you know, this happened before and it's happening again now. So as a big fan and student of history, I just wanted to kind of bring bring that up to the listeners. And I, I think it's really potent in this moment. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is a great uh, cocktail conversation, you know, the history of beer. And, you know, if you're out on a date and someone doesn't like you drinking, just say, well, hey, at least it's not that Viking ale, that stuff. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's it's so great that we are able to actually have these open discussions about psychedelics right now. Um, it, it's really cool. And, and people are coming out to share their experiences and thoughts about it. But, you know, so I was brought to my attention, again, Del Potter sent me this article to an amazing website, doubleblindmag.com. This was a time sink for me and a very good investment of time looking at this website. It is so cool. So many cool articles. And the one that he brought to my attention um, was psychedelic exceptionalism. And should all drugs be legal or just pot and psychedelics? And it discusses... Um, some very interesting things about, you know, should psychedelics be treated so differently from other drugs, um, you know, or, you know, should we encourage there to be like, you know, amphetamine coming out of the closet, heroin users coming out of the closet, the, the casual opiate user. And just to share a personal experience, you know, when I was living in San Francisco and working and going to school, uh, and, you know, the, I had, you know, Living in San Francisco, you have a lot of gay friends. It's just statistically impossible, no matter who you are. But amphetamine use used to strike me as how common it was. It seemed to be. And uh, I, I it shattered my expectations of what I had learned about drugs to see so many highly functional, successful people, you know, using this substance recreationally because everything I had learned about it told me the opposite. You know, you can't be functional on these drugs. You can't be a casual user of these, uh, you know, but those aren't the people who are showing up for treatment and showing up for studies. And so I have to wonder, you know, I do have some concerns about <laughs> guardrails for these types of ideas about, you know, getting out there and talking about you can be, you know, uh, these are the successful careers that casual heroin users have. Like, I, I don't know if we got to be careful about that messaging because, you know, certainly, you know, if you don't like drug use, they go home and burn all your albums, right? Because probably those people were all using various substances. So, but I think this is a really important thing for society to really have an adult conversation. Um, and decriminalization is one step. And as Sarah, as you said many times, feeling the societal need or keeping people safe. And so, you know, you must experience this sort of psychedelic exceptionalism or even cannab cannabidiol exceptionalism in, in your work and in your field. Um, so just, you know, let's do some comment briefly so we can uh, hop onto the science articles. 
Yeah, so one thing I'll say, I'll <laughs> try to keep it quick, but so <laughs> one thing I do a lot in my spare time uh, is go into schools and talk to kids about drug abuse. And one of, I think one of my favorite conversations that I have with the kids is that the drugs that we talk about are bad for different reasons. I think that this is a really good thought exercise. You think, okay, drugs all have something in common. They're all scheduled. We've, I think a lot of us put drugs in a bin. But I think it's important and it's a step to this kind of conversation of going down the list and saying, why do we think smoking cigarettes is bad? Why do we think drinking alcohol is bad? Why do we think using cannabis is bad? And I, when I talk to fourth and fifth graders about this, they're surprised that the reasons are really different. Why I care that my daughter might smoke cigarettes is very different from my, why I might worry that my son becomes addicted to prescription opioids. And maybe that sounds like a no brainer, but maybe it doesn't, but they have very different effects on the individual, on health, on society. So they should never be lumped all together. And this conversation, you know, they should all be decriminalized. They should all be legalized. They're all safe. They're all dangerous. I think it's, I, I just think it's a really, uh, again, a good thought process or good conversation to have with your friends and family about, tell me why you think X, Y, or Z is bad. And, and I think all of, most people I talk to are surprised to really realize that there are very, very different societal reasons why we are concerned or think we should be concerned about different drugs. Yet so many of us just think about them all together and they're all bad and should be treated the same. An, an additional dynamic just to just briefly and build on that. And Jehan, I know we got to go to the study soon. Um, it's interesting in the article, they use this word legal well and we've talked about this on the show before what is the difference between legal versus decriminalized versus regulated and regulated by who by your local government by your state by a corporation by the world health organization so um i just wanted to toss that out there as well I think that's a really good point. And, and one thing this article does not mention is one of the biggest myths out there, and, and they haven't said it about psychedelics yet, and that's the iron law of prohibition, which I've come to reconcile with, is, is absolutely false, that substances do not get more potent when they're prohibited. They get more potent as they're regulated. And I think psychedelics are a great example of that. Like, if you think LSD and mushrooms are potent, Buckle up, kiddos, because <laughs> what's coming in the pipeline is going to make that look like, you know, grandma's cough syrup. Like this is we're going into a new age with exploratory research. Uh, it's a very fascinating time. Um, so I just want to make sure everyone has a chance to comment before we move on to the research. So it looks like we're all good. So we're going to uh, we're going to talk about some very interesting articles. OK, so the first article I want to talk about is just a little dab of an article. It's short, it's sweet, it's concise, it's published in ACS Chemical Neuroscience, and it's on polypharmacology or pharmacological promiscuity in psychedelic research. And the researchers asked the question, what are we missing? And so 
you know, this is a very interesting paradigm. There are ethical issues. You know, you have these psychedelic drugs that might have one active ingredient, might have multiple active ingredients. Where are they going on the in the brain, for example? Where are they acting? Are they selective? Are they targeted? Um, and, and when we're talking about conditions like, you know, major depressive disorder or other things, those conditions can be difficult to treat and you're going to want maybe consistent, consistent effects. And we have almost no knowledge of synergy or additive mechanisms or the omics of psychedelics, how these systems function, how the beehive works when you throw in some LSD. So I, I found this just to be a very interesting kind of concept, something I hadn't really thought about because I was trained as a classical pharmacologist and you just, you know, you, you combine one or two things at a time and you measure it a uh, 50 times in a row and then you write a paper about it. And this polypharmacology approach uh, is just something I've been really interested in. And, you know, I don't even know where to begin with this article. Nigam, you know, you haven't, you haven't teed off uh, first yet on an article. So why don't you, you, you give us your insights into this? I'd love to. That was so funny when you're saying, I don't know where to begin. I wanted to say, Jehan, I know where to begin. Um, <laughs> so a couple things. Um, one, and I think we see this a lot, you know, lessons learned in cannabis. So I, I think cannabis is so helpful in helping sort of break this like ironclad, you know, thing about single molecule drugs being the only the must. So this article goes into it's a short article, I would encourage everyone to read this It's very palatable. Um, but the two things it talks about most are um, psilocybin containing mushrooms, as well as ayahuasca. And in both situations, it's very similar to cannabis, where you're getting a uh, number, a range of molecules. And uh, just to clarify to the listener, most of these are not going to be psychoactive or not going to be majorly psychoactive. So what we have is things that are creating, similar to here about the entourage effect in cannabis, like uh, you could almost copy and paste that into these situations. And then the other thing, uh, that was super interesting is the presence of these monoamine oxidase inhibitors um, in these circumstances and in certain strains of mushrooms that actually enhance the effects of the psychoactive molecules uh, due to how it's like interacting with the receptors and allowing it to have like longer action times and, and stuff like that. So um, really, really great to see this and uh, for myself personally, as a big believer in uh, plant medicine, as a big believer in the knowledge that humans have accumulated over thousands of years of our interaction with plants and, and how they can like be used for health, that this is like the pendulum kind of swinging back hard, you know, coming from single molecule to understanding the benefit of the entourage effect in cannabis to now... Um, seeing papers like this in ACS publications is, is really great. I was really excited by this. Excellent. Um, you know, we're, we're running short on HLI time and I want to get to our game. Um, but I, I welcome any, any short comments on this article. Uh, David, do you have some thoughts? You know, there's, I'd, I'd be happy to share just, you know, I was thinking about this article and, uh, you know, sharing a personal experience of how, you know, 
let's recognize that every drug has its kind of unintended consequences and, you know, negative side effects, withdrawals, and, you know, having personally pulled myself off of a SNRI for, you know, depression and anxiety disorders, like, I can tell you that that sucked. And there's a lot of negative side effects. And looking at, you know, and that's a single molecule, right? And how powerful it is and how dangerous it can be, you know, um, and thinking about this kind of holistic drug um, or, you know, holistic plant approach has a lot of benefits. And I think it's great to see this discussion happen. Um, Let me get that. And, you know, just referencing the reality too that they call out, you know, I'm not saying this to bash on any, you know, for-profit, you know, uh, pharmaceutical companies, but, you know, there's a low chance for profit, as they say, you know, when using natural products, because, you know, if you haven't synthesized and patented the single molecule for use, I mean, it's expensive to go through clinical trials and where's the money going to come from, you know, to the tune of a couple billion dollars. So it's, it's this, it's this catch 22. Um, but, you know, we have, we have to consider the full, full perspective there. So it's nice to see this article. Thank you, David. Sarah, uh, your yeah, thoughts? I'll just, yeah, I'll just add really quickly, like, to, you know, to add on to that, it's, it's another sort of why, why do one or the other, and there's different reasons why, you know, why, why is it important to study the whole plant, like for cannabis, because that's what people have been doing for thousands of years. So if we want to understand it, we need to be testing it in a way that is relevant to how it's being used why test a single agent in that plant? Well, maybe for scientific advancement, it will help to, you know, identify a new mechanism for a disease. If, if, you know, if the mushroom is good for this and I find out which agent in that mushroom does that and find out what it does in the body, then maybe I can develop new medications. So I think that, you know, both approaches are necessary. They're complementary. And I think that, you know, we need to go through the reasons why it's important to study the whole plant and the reasons why it's important to understand the different components. And back to David, I think this is one of the major obstacles that I see is how do you turn whole plants into medicines? You know, someone asked, one of the MD, PhD students at Temple asked me the other day, you know, has there ever been an FDA approved whole plant? product or plant extract and what does that mean uh, is that a right. good thing is that a bad thing how do those challenges line up to holding back development of things that could be really important from going through the fda for those who think it's important <laughs> for these to go through the yeah. fda i think you know that's a great point sarah and there's been plant products approved by the fda like a, a purified thing from garlic a purified thing i think from cranberries and also, you know, CBD uh, as well, uh, which is a, a purified form known as epidiolex. But I really like what you said. And what I heard was it's not classical pharmacology versus a polypharmacology approach, but a partnership between the two may be the best way to get the answers we're looking at. They both don't all have all the techniques and all the models and all the answers. And in combining those two approaches, you know, that might be the new ABCs of doing research in this space is a multidisciplinary uh, approach to tackling these complex problems. Um, and speaking of taking different approaches to things, uh, our second paper, uh, you know, I don't know why Mishulam always writes articles that are difficult to pronounce, but this 
cannabidiolic acid methyl ester, a stable synthetic analog of cannabidiolic acid, can produce 5-HT1A receptor-mediated suppression of nausea and anxiety in rats, subtitled run-on sentence. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I tend to be a little skeptical about a lot of stuff coming out of certain labs um, because one, you know, uh, the laureates of our field, the, the legends in our field, they, they can take a little skepticism here. Um, this paper, I'm not a huge fan of. I'm not a huge fan of the CBD acid methyl esters. One, because, uh, you know, there is some evidence they may have occurred in nature and been discovered in nature first before they were synthesized and patented. And uh, I, don't, I don't like that sort of, those sort of games. However, I have to say, you know, these are promising drugs. And if you can fill an issue in society and do it safely, it's great. But I will say this, I absolutely love figure two in this paper, the illustration of their in vivo experimental procedures. That is pretty cool. I felt like I was learning something looking at that, how they do these experiments. It really kind of brings it to life uh, what they're doing in these experiments. But, you know, Sarah, this is right up your alley. Um, when you put on your kind of skeptics hat about, you know, the CBD methyl ester with the suppression of nausea and anxiety at the 5-HT1A receptor, are you feeling like there's a strong case here or are you feeling that this is, uh, this is a little bit of showmanship here? I'm not sure, you know, this is going to pan out. Do you have, and I don't want to get you in trouble with your collaborators. So, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Well, first we should uh, wish Dr. Mishulam a happy birthday. He turned 90 years old this year and um, thank him for all of, all of that he's done. Uh, as a CBD researcher. Oh, well, we can roast him then. Now <laughs> is perfect. This Let's is roast. roast. <laughs> we, do, um, we do love him. He was a very, you know, he's everyone's favorite, you know, cannabinoid <laughs> uncle at conferences. He's very nice. I've had lunch with him many times. So, but I, you know, we do have spirited debates at that table. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one of the things yeah. I appreciate about him. So. <laughs> um, yeah. So, and this is a good example of why you want to, study single entities, you know, so we've discovered that CBD can work at the serotonin 5-HT1A receptor, and it may be a really useful tool if you're looking to target certain serotonin, you know, selective receptors. Um, beyond that, I think for me, the, so they looked at two different things with these compounds. One is nausea and the other is anxiety. Um, I, I feel very strongly about the CBD serotonin anxiety story. Um, I don't feel as strongly about the nausea story. I think, you know, THC and cannabis are not as effective as antiemetics, I think, as sometimes they are made out to be. And they've been replaced by newer serotonergic antiemetic drugs that work much better clinically. Um, so the serotonergic part with the CBD might work, um, but if you look at clinical studies, no one's shown clinically that CBD is a good antiemetic. Um, and in a lot of CBD studies, nausea is one of the most common adverse effects. So I think sometimes the preclinical research keeps going along a trajectory where there's not very much clinical evidence. Um, so that's, that's the part of it for me that I'm unsure, like, why are we pursuing analogs of CBD as antiemetics if, you know, it, what's wrong with CBD 
And does CBD even work? So, so maybe they're just trying to give it a, uh, they're like, you know, this is a great adverse event for people to experience with the drug. Let's, let's <laughs> pursue this badly. No, I think it's, it's an interesting point because, you know, it doesn't seem to bear out in humans, but man, there are some serious gaps in what we know about CBD, as Sarah, as you pointed out in the show. Um, I would like to call this article now, unless you're know, going once, going twice, three times, this article is sold to Sarah Jane Ward. Um, so let Yay! us, <laughs> uh, so we're gonna move on to a game. And as usual, uh, the winner of this game uh, receives the grand prize of expanding scientific thought and discussion. So we're gonna play this new game that David's gonna take us through. It's, it's a 20 style questions game as I understand it, but we have to guess location, entity, and operation and we're all individually competing for the grand prize of expanding scientific thoughts and discussion. Uh, so, so David, take us through a quick overview of the game and, and let's get started. Yeah, so thanks, uh, Jehan. So yeah, where, where is Valencourt or where has Valencourt been most recently in the <laughs> world of GMP cannabis operations? Um, it's limited to the United States thanks to COVID, um, but to your point, Jehan, um, you know, what location? Uh, what type of entity, and then of course, what products? Because we know it's uh, you know there's multiple product lines, um, whether it's vertical, you know the type of market, etc. So I'll let you guys start asking away. All right, David, I'd love to tee off as a first-time participant in a game. Uh, is the product that you did the GMP uh, inspection for is it is it an oral product, like orally consumed? It is not an orally product consumed product. I have a question. Um, David, is it, was it with a multi-state operator or was it with a more like a, a, a local group? Oh, wait, it's yes or no. Oh man, I'm so bad. At was game. it an MSO? Right? I, I told, yeah, was it was an, MSO, an MSO is the question. Not in the way, uh, no, I think it's the simplest answer. <laughs> Not true. Don't say too much, David. Don't tell us what you know. Oh man. Um, <laughs> it's going to be a very challenging game for me. Um, was it in the Western half of the United States? Indeed, it was in the Western half of the United States. I'm trying, so not, to got... be I'm trying not to be biased of like the personal, because like David, we're friends, right? So it's like, hmm, where I'm trying to think like, where was David when I was talking where to him last week? Been, like, I'm trying not to like bias the game. Does, uh, does the state I'm have... Oh, go ahead. So I was going to say, does the state have uh, licensed outdoor cultivation operations? And by outdoor, I mean, you know, it can have a little, you know, outdoor screen over it or even, you know, mixed greenhouse, but not just straight indoor only, you know, so like warehouse style. So I'm going to, before I answer that, or, or I think you may have to clarify whether or not it's outdoor for um, THC based or CBD based. Oh, oh, uh. Gosh, yeah, right, I'm gonna... the entity, right? Because it's location, entity, mm -hmm. product. So okay, um, that's I'm a gonna, good point. Yeah, go ahead. I'm gonna change my. I'm gonna change my question then. Uh, okay, is this product inhaled? Yes, it is inhaled. Okay, so I'm just gonna drop it. Uh, does this product contain THC? It does contain THC. Wait, wait. That's but that doesn't help, Nigam. That's just like. Oh, 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 sorry, sorry. Does this product contain more than 0.3% THC? 
also, yes. Thank you, Jehan. Thank you. I'm, I, let's, can we have? This is a hard game. Can we only? Well, is that one question? I hope that's all. No, that's we'll, only one. Okay, yeah, we'll five. Okay. That was a clarifying. That so, would have been well, so mean at... if you were like, "Yeah, it does," and that was like a hemp thing. Oh man. <laughs> so yeah, I'll, I'll quickly rehash the five questions. Right. So orally consumes no. It is not a multi-state operator either. Either um, it is in the western half of the United States. It is inhaled, which helps clarify from question one. And it does, uh, the business does contain greater than 0.3% uh, THC as their product line. And, and I'm assuming the 0.3% greater than 0.3% was intentional on their part. <laughs> I believe so, yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, so does this state um, have legal adult use cannabis? It does have legal adult use cannabis. Okay, so I'm going to... I'm just going to toss, I want to make a guess. So uh, for the audience, just the inspiration is um, for this a little bit is I played Clue recently. So that's why we're doing this like three-part thing. So I'm just going to throw out a guess because I think we can learn a lot by me guessing, right? So here's my guess. Um, was it in Colorado uh, for a manufacturer making a vape pen? I will, no, there's not. Is that a so? Is this is this all or none, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. Is it all or none? I think you. If, if it helps you, I'll I'll, I'll give this to you because you're you guys are struggling. Uh, it's a hard no on all of them individually and collectively. Hard no on all of them. Ooh, wow, that was amazing. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Shack attack. Wow. <laughs> okay. Uh, oh. Okay. Um. Interesting. Um. This is really hard. Is it a? Is it a? Uh, Cal, so I'm gonna I'm gonna do a guess. Was it was David Valencourt at a manufacturer of pre-rolled cannabis cigarettes in California? Um, see, California. It was, it was he in California at a manufacturer of at a manufacturer's place that makes pre-rolled cigarettes? Negative. No. Ah. Oh. Uh, again is it negative on all of them um it is negative in part of it we're cheating i okay let me ask you i'm, I'm gonna, gonna give you that go ahead. ask a direct question was it in california it was not in california um what i'm burning questions guys but i think we're narrowing in was it in oregon, oregon? yeah Despite that's where I'm hailing from today, it was not in Oregon. Okay, someone oh, else yeah. did say the obvious and get a yes here. We're burning so many questions. Are you, are Sarah, you in Washington yeah, Sarah, State? <laughs> what other states are out in the West? <laughs> Ish. Are you in Washington? It's not in Washington. Oh either. my God. Oh no. Ah, ah, ah. It's Nevada. Yes. Okay, What's, so, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Is that an official guest, Stigum? Is that official? Oh, I was making a statement. I'm not even playing. Oh, yeah, anymore. this is table talk. This is table talk. Hold on. So, was it? Was it a? Say, so I believe David was doing the GM, GMP inspection in Nevada at a manufacturer, and the product was THC uh, pre-rolled cannabis cigarettes. Ding, ding, ding. Hey, oh. Winner, winner. I love this game. And not just because I won. <laughs> that, was, All right. that was really, um, that was challenging. And David, I think the only reason you we, we got there soon is because um, you kind of like, you, you were helping us out, right? With letting yeah. us like answer on the guesses. But that, that was hard. That was like harder than I thought. But I think it, um, 
highlights to the listeners just the very multi-dimensional facet of like when we say cannabis industry like wow what a breadth and depth of things that are happening and the fact that that market is unique to california or sorry nevada in that case right that single state market and that single product line and has unique regulations that is different than in right over this just down the corner in colorado or california or arizona or soon to be montana south dakota etc wow that is so fascinating uh, I, you know, we could stay and talk about all the different things people are doing with cannabis products, but that's that's our show. Uh, David, thank you so much for playing Where's Valancourt. Uh, it was so much fun. Um, we're always curious about where you're calling in from and what you've been up to with real world data and visiting cannabis operations. Uh, thank you, Nigam, for, for co-piloting this with me. And Sarah, always a pleasure to have you on the show. You bring so much wonderful insight to the table. And we'd also like to thank you, the listener, for clicking, tapping, swiping, however you got on this, for making it to the end. And if you are hearing this, we we also have to thank our trusty audio engineer, Joe Leonardo, who has edited and mixed this episode and every episode we've put out. Thank you so much. Uh, and we look forward to chatting with you all again real soon. Yeah.